Welcome to Fife's Pulpit by the Sea, to our midweek Bible studies together. Well, we're going through the Shorter Catechism. And the first week we looked at the first question, which is why are we here? What is our chief end in life? We have many ends, but what is our chief overriding end? It is, said the answer, to glorify God and to actually enjoy him forever. Now, question two is this. What rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him forever? How are we to do that? Well, we're studying through these um, questions. It's very, very basic stuff. Um, Embarrassingly simple and basic, um, giving you a foundation for your Christian life, which what we all what is what we all need. So now then, let's answer this question: What rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify Him and how we may enjoy Him? Now imagine then being alive in this world and not knowing what you know now. Imagine you are part of some remote jungle tribe with only nature around you. You might look around and realise that all this beauty must come from somewhere or someone and you feel small and at times afraid living in a kind of hostile environment. You feel the need for protection. You need something to look to, some charm, some lucky stone or some god that you could feel secure with. So you use your own mind and you invent what you think this God looks like, what he wants. You might look, for instance, at the sun and it comes out every day and it gives light and warmth and we notice how things grow when the sun is out. And therefore you think this truly is a God of some sort. So you begin to worship the sun. Is your God then cruel? Does he demand human sacrifice? Is he wicked and needs placating? Or is he angry? Are the group of gods that you worship always at war with each other? Is your God bigger than the next tribe's God? What would happen if you moved into their territory? Would your God be powerless and their God be strong? Which God would win in a fight? So you have all these kind of ideas about God, but they are based upon what you observe in nature and what your experience has been. A good example of this is the North American Indian who looked at nature and felt overwhelmed, but somehow part of all of this. So he built up a religion based on Manitou, the great God of creation, the great spirit. Now the point is this, that within every person God has created a longing to know him, a void or emptiness that only God can fill. And this is a uniquely human thing. Let me go on with my illustration. Let's go further now into the jungle till we come across a colony of gorillas. Now they just get on with gorilla things, doing gorilla actions, picking fleas, hunting, feeding, bringing up the young, But nowhere do we find an altar. Nowhere do we find an effigy or any form of worship. They have a pecking order, but they don't seem to have a deity. And the reason is because their desire to know God 
that the desire, sorry, to know God is a human thing. That makes us different. Human beings are different, different from everyone else. And further proof of this is that we didn't descend from apes and along the way develop a God conscience. This is how we were created in God's image with an ability to know God and to enjoy him forever. So we have to know exactly who this God is before we can enjoy him. So God sets about revealing himself to us. The first way is what we call general or natural revelation. And this is all very basic stuff. That is a revealing to every human being that there is a God. This is by allowing the created human mind to see and understand that there is a God through his creation and beauty. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare, radiate the glory of God, and earth shows forth his handiwork. Paul used this argument in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, when he said, The invisible things of God from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So then man was without excuse that he can see that somehow there is a God. But then that's about as far as it goes. How do we glorify this unknown God? How do we enjoy this unknown God? If only of our own understanding to interpret what he's like and what he wants, other people might have a different view of him than we have. So how do we know? Now this is where God again steps in. He has made us to enjoy him and he has put in our hearts this desire to know him. He has shown us in creation that he exists, but we are sinful, dark and cannot ever really know who and what he wants from us. It's pure guesswork. Our minds are polluted with sin and in darkness. Ever since the man, man fell into sin, man has wanted this earth, making his own gods and trying to find a way forward. So then we come to what is called special revelation, which in turn leads to a saving revelation. We deal with that later on in the Catechism. <clears throat> special revelation is where God speaks his word to us. He literally breathes his word, says the scriptures, using people to write it down in what we call the Bible. 66 books, humanly speaking, the Bible was written by approximately 40 men of diverse backgrounds over the course of 1,500 years. For instance, Isaiah was a prophet, Ezra a priest, Matthew was a tax collector, John a fisherman, Paul a Pharisee and a tent maker, Moses a prince and a shepherd, Luke was a physician. And despite being penned by many different authors over 15 centuries, this book breaks through in to a world of ignorance and darkness. So this word is known as the light of God's word. This voice gives light to man so that we might know who God is and exactly what he wants from us. This is how special and precious this book is. There is no book like this. And if we do not have this book, we do not have light. 
we still walk in darkness. Now man has sinned and his mind and his emotions and actions are centred around himself. He tries to find God, so religions pop up, saying that they have the truth. They are the way to God. They have the life. And that's why Jesus says that he was the truth, the way and the life. But looking serious at them, they are simply human thoughts, mixed with some God-given common sense, together with a lot of superstition. And all of them depend upon man working to please this God. But this is where this book, the Bible, comes in. For all of these 66 books from many authors over many years have one glorious theme. They reveal God, albeit gradually, until we have a full revelation of him in Jesus Christ. It breaks through ignorance and darkness and shows us who God is and just what he wants from us. Just a word to answer the question, why didn't God reveal himself right at the beginning <clears throat> fully? Why is this revelation of himself called a gradual revelation? <clears throat> well, in the next study, we ask the question of who or what is God? And the answer is in words of Jesus in John 4 to the woman at the well, that God is a spirit or God is spirit. Now, humans are flesh and blood and live and move in that environment. It is impossible for us to understand spiritual things. We are not tuned into that. So whilst God is spirit, all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful, man in his humanity finds this hard to grasp. So God reveals himself gradually to us, little by little. Starting with his name, he says, I am that which I am, the Lord Almighty. I am the one that was, is, and is to come, the changeless one. So he says, this is the God I'm going to show to you. Then he sets about gradually revealing what this means. How can we approach him? He shows us from the beginning that blood sacrifice is needed. When Adam sinned, an animal was slain and the, the skin was put upon Adam to cover his guilt and his nakedness. So then he sets about revealing things gradually. Little by little he reveals how he is going to bring us back to him because we have wandered from him. Then in the fullness of time, the Plurona Kronos, the fullness of time, he comes in his final statement of who he is. And by his son Jesus Christ, coming in human form, so that we can know God, God who is spirit, we can actually see him in the flesh. And that is why we must study the whole Bible and get the big picture. Of course man is sinful, man is self-willed and will not believe this book, but prefers to work it out for himself. His pride will not allow for instruction. Actually, the more man rejects this book is an evidence of his willful, sinful, proud nature. He is a narcissist by nature. He is always right. He is never wrong. It is his way and his way only. And that's what man says. He will say, how can this book be the only truth? How do we know that it's not been changed like the Koran has been changed? Well, I will answer that question in reverse order. Has the Bible changed? 
Surely we know that if something is handed down by word of mouth, we've all done that in school classes and made this exercise and what starts off as eggs and bacon ends up as uh, stew and dumplings. How can we be sure? Now this is very technical stuff, but the quality of manuscripts we can be sure of. <clears throat> because of the great reverence the Jewish scribes held towards the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, they exercised extreme care in making new copies of the Hebrew Old Testament Bible. The entire scribal process was specified in meticulous detail to minimise the possibility of even the slightest error. The number of letters, words and lines were counted and the middle letters of the Pentateuch and the Old Testament were determined and if a single mistake was discovered, the entire manuscript would be destroyed. They were dealing with the word of God. <clears throat> the quality and quantity of the New Testament manuscripts is unparalleled in ancient literature. There are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, about 8,000 Latin manuscripts and another thousand manuscripts in other languages, Syriac, Coptic, and other languages. In addition to this extraordinary number, there are tens of thousands of citations of the New Testament passages by the early church fathers. Although there are about 300,000 individual variations of the New Testament text in manuscripts, this number is very misleading. Most of the differences are completely inconsequential spelling errors, inverted phrases and the like. Of the remaining differences, virtually all can be sorted out by using uh, uh, vigorous textual criticism. And in the entire 20,000 lines of text, only 40 lines are in doubt, about 400 words. And none of these things are in doubt affects any significant doctrine. This means that the Greek text from which we derive our New Testament translations is, as accepted, 99.5% pure. And where there are differences, they are not important differences. If we reject the authenticity of the New Testament on textual grounds, we also then have to reject every work of antiquity prior to AD 1000 since there is less manuscripts evidence for their authenticity than there is for the New Testament. So we can be fairly sure and confident that the book we have is true. Now there are different versions today, different explanations of, of that. There are some that are literal translations, some that are paraphrased translations to get to the sense of what's being said. But by and large, every one of them agrees on the text. Second question is, but how then can we know this book is truth? Well, we could look at its own testimony and the fact that the New Testament authors were in the main eyewitnesses. But for me, the biggest thing is that it simply all holds together perfectly. Now, I have been going through the scriptures. I'm not an expert by any means, as you'll tell him from my studies here. There's no great depth to them. <clears throat> but I have 
look through the scriptures and to me it just holds together beautifully. Right from Genesis to Revelation, it speaks with one voice. Despite many authors, the message just doesn't change. God reveals himself slowly to Abraham, then a little more to Moses, then more to his people in the wilderness through sacrifice, then more through David as a type of Christ and the temple as a picture of the church. Then Christ is seen in Isaiah. The prophets speak of one who is to come and God keeps reinforcing this by shadows and types. Not one of them is out of step with the others. They all speak with one voice. And all these people depict light to all the fallen areas of man. The prophets, they speak to the mind of men. The priests bring their hearts and emotions near to God. And King David and Solomon shows us of God's rule. So the Old Testament gradually addresses the three areas in which man fell, in his thinking and his nearness and heart and love toward God and his will and his actions. Then the New Testament opens and it all comes together. God's final wonderful revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. Perfect man, perfect God, who then does exactly what the prophet said and the shadows pointed to. He comes as a complete fulfilment and the redemption of fallen man. He becomes our prophet, opening our minds, our priests by sacrificing himself and bringing our hearts and love back to God, and our king by sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and directing through his word. He won a church which was pictured in the Old Testament. The Jewish nation was judged in AD 70. The sacrificial system was taken away once and for all. Now Christ was the Lamb and the only way to God. We see the church being built just as God intended. We see the serpent being trodden underfoot like Genesis said. And in Revelation we see all that is evil, that old serpent, and all the unfaithful, all that is untrue, is dealt with. A man is put back again in the garden in fellowship fully and completely with God forever. And we are back where we should be. And God states, I will be their God and they will be my people. This is one great theme throughout the scriptures. And towards, well, come towards the end of our studies, I'm going to give you all the different types of scripture because they all speak of different aspects of the revelation of God. Well, not only that, it is the God that gets all the glory, not us. And that's why I know this book is true, because it rings with the truth. It makes sense of human nature. It makes sense of the state of the world. It just makes sense of everything. Of course, assuming the Bible is from God, the next question is, is it all from God? Now, this is important, especially for the new convert. Of course, we can listen to what the Bible says about itself, how the New Testament apostles assumed that the Old Testament was from God and Jesus himself said that not a jot or tittle should be taken away, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law or the scriptures to fail, Luke 16, 17. 
Some terms are often used. Evangelicals say that the Bible is verbal plenary inspiration. A term often used, and it means simply this. Verbal, every spoken word of God is God-breathed. God spoke it. Plenary, all parts of the Bible are equally as inspired. All scripture is given by God, says Paul to Timothy. Inspiration, it means that God guided every word as it was written, as men wrote, moved by God, says Peter. So it is verbal, plenary, inspiration. These are terms Christians have used over the years to describe the Bible. Something else you will come across is the word contained. When the Puritans used this to say that the Bible contains the word of God, what they meant simply was that the whole contents of this book was the word of God. However, today, people call liberals use this word to say that the Bible contains the word of God, implying that some of its contexts are from God and others may not be from God. But what a Christian believes is that this book is a gift, a love letter from God. And it is the word of God. It is actually very wrong to subject it to human judgment as to what God, what is really the word of God and what is not. And that's what liberalism does, neo-orthodoxy does as well. They say some of it is the word of God, say some. Others say it becomes the word of God when it speaks to you, otherwise it's the word of man. But no, the true view, surely, is that what God has said is his word, full stop. And one great problem that people have today, and where most of the criticism of the Bible comes from, is a simple failure to understand the type of literature that is used. Many forms of literature found in the Bible are these. There is law, history, wisdom, poetry, narrative, epistles, prophecy, and apocalyptic literature. If we want to glorify him, then we read God's words, his manual, our creator's handbook for his creation, in which he tells us what he is like and how we can reflect him. Without this book, we would not have a scooby of how to glorify God, and we certainly would not know how to enjoy him. And again, as we read this book, we align our lives to it, we reflect God to the world, and the result is that we actually enjoy him. At the hymn says, there is no joy, no thrill, like walking in his will. But the main thing is that we have to be have absolute trust, believe in what God has written for us, that we don't act like those who think they know better than God, and we build our faith and belief solely upon it, not upon anything else, upon this society. We do not change this word to meet the society. We change the society to meet the word. Finally, we drop into question three. What does this book principally teach us? And the answer is it teaches us what we are to believe and what we are to do. Again, we would know nothing about who God is or what he wants if we didn't have our Bibles. And it's important to know, notice the order of the answer 
to question three, what we are to believe and what we are to do. Belief is truth and doctrine. To do is actions stemming from the right belief. Once again, we know in Ephesians 1 to 3, there is doctrine and truth. In 4 to 6, there is the right actions. It's the same in Romans. It's the same in 1 Peter. Again, this is the layout of the Ten Commandments way back in the Old Testament. Belief about God, then the right actions. This book, when studied, will help us form a systematic theology about God and actions. And we will bury that systematic theology, that belief on the Bible, deep in our souls so we can judge all things, we can know all things, wherever we turn in the scriptures, whether it's Genesis, whether it's the Psalms, whether it's the epistles, or whether it's the apocalyptic literature of Revelation, the message is the same. And we can begin to understand what God is saying clearly from this. So what we've learnt is that this book is so important and precious that it reveals to us God. It opens our minds as to what we are to believe. It stirs our hearts. It instructs our actions. 2 Timothy 3.16 sums it up. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This book is precious to us. It has got one mind behind it, which is the mind of Almighty God, who is working all things and revealing himself to us graciously in this book. Let me, in closing, give you the understanding of the Bible in its literature form, literature form. The Bible is a work of literature. Literature comes in different categories based on style, and each is read and appreciated differently from another. For example, to confuse a work of science fiction with a medical textbook will cause many problems. They must be understood differently. You don't turn to a work of science fiction to get the answers, but you do to a medical textbook. Therefore, accurate exegesis and interpretation takes into consideration the purpose and style of a given book or passage of Scripture. Now, this is why it is so important, particularly in the book of Revelation. We have all kinds of fanciful, silly ideas today. The main forms of literature found in the Bible are these. As I've said before, I repeat again. Law, history, wisdom, poetry, narrative, epistles, prophecy and apocalyptic literature. Let me run them through, through, through them for you. Law. This includes the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The purpose of the law is to express God's sovereign will concerning government priestly duties, social responsibilities, the knowledge of Hebrew manners and customs of the time, as well as the knowledge of covenants, which will complement uh, um, the rest of Scripture. But we read this material, we understand that God is setting down principles of law which have deeper meanings in Jesus Christ. Then we come to history. The stories and epics from the Bible are included. 
Almost every book in the Bible contains some history. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah and Acts are predominantly history. A knowledge of secular history is crucial as it dovetails with biblical history and makes for a better understanding. But we interpret these as historical matters. Then we have wisdom. This is the area that teaches us the meaning of life and how we are to live, mostly written by Solomon. Some of the language used in wisdom literature is metaphorical and poetic, and this should be taken into account. During analysis, this includes the books of Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. Then we have poetry. These books include uh, of the rhythmic pose, the parallelism, the metaphor, such as the Song of Solomon, Lamentations and Psalms, or oh, the Blessed Psalms. We know that many of the Psalms were written by David, himself a musician, or David's worship leader, Asaph. Because poetry does not translate easily, we lose some of the musical flow in the, in the English. But these are poetic books. Nevertheless, still truth. They still convey truth. But they are to be understood and interpreted as they are. Then you have the narrative, which includes the Gospels, which are biographically narratives about Jesus. And the books of Ruth, Esther, Jonah. A reader may find bits of other types of literature within the Gospels, such as a parable and a discourse. The parables in Luke 8 and Matthew 24, the discourse. Then we get to the epistles. The epistle is a letter, usually written in a formal style. There are 21 letters in the New Testament, from the apostles to various churches or individuals. These letters have a style very similar to modern letters. They have an opening saying, hi, hello, how are you? This is Paul. They have a body where they tackle difficulties in, in the local area, which are very relevant to us today. Remember, this is still the word of God. This is still God speaking through men. And they have various uh, details for churches. These have a very similar style to modern letters, as I've said. The content of the epistles involves clarification of prior teaching, rebuke, explanation, correction of false teaching, and a, a deeper dive into the teachings of Jesus. The reader would do well to understand the cultural, historical and social situations of the original recipients in order to get the most out of the analysis of these books. You know, when we know the history in the background, I think like a Paul, when he was in the Acts of the Apostles, he was speaking uh, in, in Athens. He took their culture and he applied it. And the epistles do that. They speak in their culture, but they're nevertheless still the word of God, still relevant for us today. Don't go running away with the idea it's just cultural, nothing to do with us today. No, this is the word of God, still the same. Then we have prophecy and apocalyptic literature. The prophetic writings are the Old Testament books of Isaiah through Malachi and the New Testament book of Revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. By the way, Revelation is not the revelation of the future, but the revelation, it says, of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus to the world and what he is going to do in this world. 
They include predictions of future events in the Old Testament, warnings of coming judgment, with an overview of God's plan for Israel. Apocalyptic literature is a specific form of prophecy, largely involving symbols, imaginary things, that are real, nevertheless, don't go running away with the idea that they're not true and real, they are, and predicting disaster and destruction. We find this kind of language in Daniel and the beasts of chapter 7, Ezekiel, the scroll of chapter 3, Zechariah, the golden lampstand of chapter 4, and Revelation, the four horsemen of chapter 6. The prophetic and apocalyptic books are one of the most often subjected to faulty, faulty exegesis and personal interpretation based on emotion and preconceived biases. I'm having trouble with my words tonight for some reason. Some things will not be made clear to us except in the fullness of time. So it is best not to assume to know everything when it comes to prophetic literature. It is a minefield of danger sometimes. And yet, when truly understood, it is sweet and very precious. So an understanding of the types of literature in Scripture is vital to our understanding of the Bible. If there's the wrong understanding of the type of literature you're dealing with is assumed for a passage, it can easily be misunderstood or misconstrued and we miss the central point of it. Leads to an incomplete and false understanding of what God desires to communicate. God is not the author of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14.33 and he wants us to correctly handle the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 So dear ones, that's the end now of um, really question one, uh, sorry, question two and, and question three we've touched upon. But I hope that's been helpful. I, I apologise that it has been very, very basic, very simple, things that you probably learned when you were just a baby Christian and somebody sat you down and said, this is the way things are. But thank you for staying the course with me. And again, I apologise for it being uh, very basic and very simple. But the catechism will be like that because I'm just laying down the foundation for you to help you to become better in your understanding and as a better Christian. Some things you may not fully agree with me about. And, and of course, as I grow older, sometimes my opinion on things change. But by and large, these things are true and fixed. So I commend them to you. As I say, our first question or second question today was how can we know God? How can we glorify him? And how can we enjoy him? It is by reading this book, reading this Bible, that we can. So if this has been a help to you, then, then just let me know. It's always a great encouragement. And as we go through this wonderful old form of Bible teaching, of teaching theology together. Now let me give you a blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and be very gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. And now may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son and Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>